I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. If there's a predominant theme in sustainable investing right now, it's got to be regulation. That's manifesting in efforts to improve basic climate and ESG corporate disclosures, apply notions of materiality, as well as protect against greenwashing. And while the EU's legislation-driven approach has already delivered a number of investor frameworks, the U.S. SEC's regulatory approach to climate and ESG is evolving under the new Biden administration. In my mind, this provides a fascinating view of the arguments for how to world-build around issues like disclosure, materiality, and enforcement. And for followers of the regulatory discussion, you can't have missed the incredibly thoughtful speeches and statements delivered by many of the SEC commissioners. Their views don't necessarily align ideologically, but they always prove provocative and push the discussion forward. One of the views I always look forward to reading is from Commissioner Allison Heron Lee. Her writing examines many of the fundamental elements of ESG through the prism of case law, and she's not afraid to challenge its myths and misconceptions. It's why I'm so excited to have Commissioner Lee on this podcast. We talk about the SEC's evolving views around disclosure and materiality, its enforcement efforts, and the need to work towards greater harmonization given the multitude of global disclosure frameworks. Commissioner Allison Heronley was appointed and sworn into the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in 2019. While Commissioner Lee served as SEC Acting Chair, she was responsible for establishing the Climate and ESG Enforcement Task Force. She brings to the SEC over two decades of experience as a securities law practitioner. Commissioner Lee served for over a decade in various roles at the SEC, including as counsel to Commissioner Kara Stein and as senior counsel in the Division of Enforcement's Complex Financial Instruments Unit. Welcome to the podcast, Commissioner Allison Heron Lee. It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Perfect. So, Commissioner Lee, we've got a lot to talk about, but I, I think it'd be useful to start out with some scene setting. The SEC's 2010 climate guidance seems like a natural entry point into the whole disclosure discussion. That 2010 guidance was it was important for introducing the notion of climate change risk, but it didn't mandate it as an issue to be disclosed or discussed by itself unless the issuer considered the risk material. So fast forward to today, and there's certainly been some Reg SK modernization over the last two years, but it continues to overlook climate risk and diversity disclosures, areas that both you and Commissioner Crenshaw have both pushed. Uh, you know, for context, why is this so controversial when disclosures generally promote fair and efficient markets? Well, that's a that's actually a very good question. Um, you know, why controversial? I, but I think I want to start with just laying the, the the backdrop. You mentioned the 2010 guidance. That was a very important step forward at the time, thanks to the leadership of the chair at the time, Mary Shapiro. Um, but of course, there have been significant developments since 2010 in what we know about the risks and the opportunities that are related to climate change. And I think that now requires us to go farther than the 2010 guidance. We, you mentioned that we adopted amendments to Reg SK, and we did over the last couple of years. 
we've actually um, purported to modernize four different sections of REG-SK, the one being MDNA, what's, what, which is management discussion and analysis. That is supposed to be a lens into how the business is operating kind of through the eyes of management. There's um, the description of the business, which is the first thing you see when you open up an annual report. There's legal proceedings, there's risk factors. All four of those topics have been purportedly modernized over the last couple of years, but there was not even a mention of climate in, in any of those, um, let alone imposing any kind of you know, specific requirements. So why the resistance? Um, you know, I, I think it reflects some philosophical differences in an approach to disclosure kind of amongst the commissioners. So broadly over the last you know, three years or so, there's, a, there's been a preference or a leaning toward what they call principle-based rules that sort of lean heavily on the principle that you know that management should decide if something is itself decide if a topic or an issue or, or you know whatever it may be is material to their business, and then disclose what they think is material about it. Many times that results in simply a, a risk factor that doesn't provide a lot of information beyond just saying, "Hey, this creates a risk to our business." Um, I think we need to reassess that balance. It's always been a balance between principle-based requirements where we say, you know, if it's material, you should disclose it. And then what we kind of think of more as line item disclosures, where we say, for example, disclose an executive comp, the, um, you know, certain, certain metrics applicable to the top five earners in your business. You know, we don't say if the top five earners are, you know, salaries and, and other comp is material, disclose it. We just say disclose it because we know that topic is material. So, so we're always trying to find the right balance. And I think that's where the philosophical potential disagreements um, have arisen. I think we have leaned too heavily on a principles-based regime. And it's very clear that, you know, there's very little disclosure out there in, um, in Reg SK that has arisen uh, pursuant to that 2010 guidance and the demand has become overwhelming. So it seems quite clear to me at this point that we need to um, step in and assist by helping um, both issuers and investors get at what's really important and make sure it gets disclosed consistently and, and reliably. How does the commission think about addressing what could be an inevitable litigation risk that, that comes with such sweeping new disclosure requirements? I guess, you know, in other words, is there a worry that a new disclosure regime will lead to an explosion in securities litigation? Commissioner Roisman had, said, had mentioned this before, but to what degree would safe harbor statements or furnishings be a useful middle ground between differing views of mandatory disclosure? Sure. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you refer to furnishings, meaning as opposed to having it be filed with us, they do, they still provide it to us, but they do it under this rubric known as furnishing, which doesn't create the same level of liability that it does when it's filed. Those are sort of technical terms, so just to, just to explain that somewhat for, for the audience. But you know, I do think we need to look at and think about that. There are a lot of ideas that that we've discussed that are they're in the comment file that I've been looking at and researching, that I've been talking to various market participants about. Safe harbor is one of them. Safe harbor is simply, you know, if you meet certain conditions and it's a forward-looking statement, I think it needs to be something forward-looking. Um, you know, I could be convinced that maybe we need a specific one for climate, although I will say 
there is an existing safe harbor for forward-looking statements already written into our rules. So I would need to think about, you know, what may be lacking there that would be insufficient to cover anything that we might create with respect to climate. Um, and and the, the difference between furnished and filed, that's another one that we're going to have to look at and think about. Um, but I do think we need to be prepared to, to say that, you know, if we're going to have these requirements, they need to be reliable and companies need to pay close and careful attention to ensure that they get it right. That's not to say we want to set it up so that it's some sort of gotcha attempt to, to trip them up. We want to let them, um, you know, we want the, them, them to have time to learn, to learn from their peers, to learn from the research, to learn from their um, their ongoing disclosures and, and the internal systems that they set up. It needs to be safe uh, because we need to uh, you know, the goal is to get to good, accurate disclosure, n- not to create liability for issuers. But, you know, when, when if, they, if they don't make a good faith attempt to get it right, if they do engage in greenwashing, if they do, um, you know, which we've certainly seen enough of out there, then there should be, there should be some, um, you know, some consequence and some way to make sure that we can pull that back um, and, and get it right and make sure that the folks who are playing by the rules are not competing with those who are not. Um, that's, that's an unfair um, and unlevel playing ground. And I think that's something that is a, um, something that, the, that, that private litigation can address in times in a much more thorough way than, than we can as regulators. So it's a complementary scheme. We need to we need to make sure that we that we give them the time and the space to get it right, but um, they also have a responsibility to get it right, and that needs to be policed both by regulators and the private markets. In response to the SEC's recent request for input on climate change disclosures, uh, I've seen feedback from the institutional sample uh, that indicates significant corporate and investor support. You know, effectively seventy five percent of the largest respondents for mandatory disclosure, which is great to see. Within that though, how do you think about taking a more pragmatic climate first approach relative to a much more ambitious, broader disclosure framework? Sure. I mean, you know, obviously I think it's, it's pretty plain that there are many ways in which climate is unique. Um, it's uniquely pressing. It's unique potentially in its um, systemic implications. Um, and, and it's unique in the broad recognition of the need for mandatory disclosures. So, you know, I, I can understand the, the thinking behind and the reasoning for taking a climate first approach. But I, you know, I think it's equally as important as we go forward with this rulemaking. I think it would be a mistake to lose sight of the broader spectrum of ESG issues because um, it's quite plain that that ESG, the rubric, um, you know, which encompasses a broad a broad spectrum of, of issues and, and metrics and risks and opportunities is in fact what investors are basing their decisions on now. Um, you know, over the last 10 years, you know, some would say 20 or 30, but certainly over the last 10 years, many, many um, investors have come to conclude that this presents a, um, you know, a much, a much more solid foundation upon which to price risk and, and allocate capital. So we can't lose sight of that. Um, investor interest certainly doesn't stop at climate and neither do the risks and opportunities. So neither should the regulatory 
focus. Um, we can, you know, as we as we look at climate, we're also looking at you've probably seen from our regulatory agenda some additional kind of rulemakings that are connected to ESG, like human capital management, um, potentially uh, board diversity, those kind of things. So we can do some additional maybe standalone rules, but we, I think, also need to consider whether there's a need for a body that can more comprehensively look at sustainability or ESG issues more broadly, like the IFRS is doing through the Sustainability Standards Board Initiative. I think we should give, you know, um, some, some real thought to that, uh, you know, because even with respect to climate, we're going to face real challenges in keeping a climate rule updated. And I don't have any doubt that the SEC can put out a good rule, but we need to keep it updated when there are developments in this space and they happen very rapidly. So something like a sustainability standard setter that's more nimble and can focus more exclusively on these issues, I think, um, would be helpful. And I hope that we'll follow close on the heels of any um, kind of climate initiatives that may come out of the SEC. That makes sense. Um, just given the SEC request for input revealed a preference towards the TCFD disclosure framework and the SASB materiality framework. But I do wonder, I mean, have you identified sort of that sweet spot between market-driven solutions and regulatory frameworks? If market-driven initiatives are reaching a point of diminishing returns, and I think there's an argument for that, how do regulators pick up from there? From a European perspective, at least uh, my involvement in EFRA, the European Financial Reporting Advisory Group, I think it was sort of interesting to sort of examine their strategy that went about essentially cherry-picking qualities from a number of different frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no question that it's, that it's a huge advantage that so much great work has already been done, you know, under this largely voluntary regime by TCFD, by 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 SASB now BRF and and many others. So we have the luxury of learning from and building off of that work. I think we've clearly reached a point where regulatory intervention is needed, um, or regulatory involvement, um, I suppose you could say, is needed. Because, as you know, there are plenty of companies that still are not disclosing, and there is, of course, a lack of comparability and consistency, not to mention questions around the reliability of the disclosures. So I think a, a required regime can help, help cure those, those informational gaps, and it's time. I mean, you know, I think it's, the market has done a lot of work up to this point. We're going to learn from and, and, and leverage that work, but there are certain things that cannot be achieved, in my view, um, through market-driven solutions, and that is the reason that we're seeing this demand. And it's not just investors demanding it; it's issuers as well. They've been, you know, just battered with with um, competing and, and sometimes conflicting demands for information from all manner of market participants. So, you know, we have the chance now and the opportunity, and I think the time is right for us to come in, um, help organize uh, the the thinking around one standard alleviate some of the pressure that's on issuers and get some certainty around what's required of them. So I, I think as we do that, of course, we're going to build on it. it. makes sense for us to look at these existing standards to see what's worked, what's being disclosed, how, how well that's um, working for issuers, how well that's working for investors. Um, we also get to see what doesn't work on the flip side. Are there limitations? Are there deficiencies? How can we improve on that? So, you know, it's it's clearly been um, a long process to get where we are now, but we need to, um, I think, take the final step and help help bring some consistency to the space. 
Yeah, it's it's a fascinating issue. It's not just what this disclosure standard framework looks like. It's it's also sort of a sequencing issue. I get, you know, how do you think about that sequencing behind corporate ESG disclosures? Should it be linear and bottom up, starting at the corporate level, um, which would seem to be intuitive, or are there lessons to be gained from the EU's approach, which you know effectively inverted the sequencing so that pressure from big institutional investors ends up driving better and wider corporate reporting, specifically among small to medium enterprises? Sure. I, I, and I can see the thinking behind that. I don't, I'll start by saying, I don't think there's only one right way to, to go about it. And I certainly take your point that the EU's approach of doing the taxonomy first had the effect of, of putting pressure on issuers through large investors to disclose the information that those funds are going to need to comply with the taxonomy obligations on the other hand, of course, I've heard from some observers of the EU process that, you know, there are some who think maybe that puts the cart before the horse in the sense that the funds are responsible for a degree of consistency under the taxonomy that's challenging given the degree of inconsistency in issuer disclosure. So I personally tend to think that issuer disclosure is more likely the best place to start here in the U.S. Um, I, I think there's something to the argument that a degree of regularity in issuer disclosure is what's needed to facilitate greater regularity in the way that funds and advisors can actually disclose what it is that they're offering. So, you know, as we go about the process of implementing a climate disclosure rule, we, we can and we should also look at ESG issues and how they impact funds and advisors. But we will. We will focus on that too. But I think that focus will be aided by the progress that we make on the, on the building blocks of issuer disclosure. Um, I, I, you know, again, I, I can't say that I think there's one and only one right way to do it. And, you know, perhaps we learn from one another as we go forward, but it has been my, my considered view that we might, um, that starting with, with gaining some common, uh, common usage, common, con some consistency and approach, some reliability, all of that at the basic standard of, of the, um, you know, of, of corporate issuance is a good place to start here in the U.S. The SEC has traditionally been a regulatory leader where other regulatory bodies then adopt comparable or consistent rules. How do you see the SEC's role among global regulators when it comes to climate and ESG and, and the likelihood for harmonization around that? Or, or is it more realistic to expect to see the kind of looser harmonization that exists between international accounting standards already, like, like GAAP and IFRS? That, that, that's been an interesting saga to, to watch with GAAP and IFRS and all the various ways in which we've, we've converged and not converged. And, you know, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure whether I would call that a success or not. It might be at some level. I, I don't, I'm not, I, you know, I, I have to say, I think the jury's still out a little bit on that. Um, but but I, I will say with the issue of climate and ESG first, and foremost, um, it's global. Um, climate is a global problem. So it's a global challenge and, and we need a, a global solution. So the need, in my view, for harmonization is more, even more compelling um, in, in, this, in this particular area. Now, I mean, so and, and in that sense, I think jurisdictions and regulators all around the world need to work together. I think that's what they're doing. We're seeing tremendous cooperation. We're seeing regulatory cooperation, you know, jurisdictional cooperation, public-private 
type cooperation and, and in the U.S. and the SEC in particular, we have an important role to play in that cooperation. I think part of our role is to move forward with the right requirements on climate and ESG for our specific jurisdictional needs, but we've got to be very mindful of the extent to which those might influence or affect international efforts and be very mindful, in my view, of the need for harmonization. So part of our role here is supporting and guiding, hopefully helping to guide efforts like the Sustainability Standards Board, because you know what I think others, but certainly we, or in my view, need to do is support the effort to achieve an international baseline. Um, all the jurisdictions are not going to look the same. We have unique differences and needs, um, but but a baseline uh, is a, I think is a very important concept for us to all stay focused on, as opposed to what you could think of as more of a buffet, where you sort of take what you want off the buffet and leave the rest. I think we really need to to work together to establish a baseline that, that folks can build on as they need and see fit. Mm-hmm. I'd like to change lanes a little bit and talk about materiality, something you've spent uh, a good deal of time writing about. Thanks to a number of legal precedents over the last 30 to 40 years, even up to the Supreme Court, the definition of materiality appears pretty clear, at least to me, you know, it it is quote, a matter of, a matter is material if there's a substantial likelihood that a reasonable person would consider it important, end quote. The fact that so many institutional investors now regard climate and ESG information as material would seem, at least in my mind, to settle this issue. Why do you think this debate persists and and what's it going to take to resolve it? So I'll start by talking about that definition. Um, You're right, that's, that's the the full, you know, the, the definition that's been, um, it's in Supreme Court case law, it's, it's very clearly stated. How clearly it's applied is a different question. Um, everybody's view of what's, what's a substantial likelihood, what's a reasonable person, you know, all of those kinds of issues come up in, in each and every case. But understand that that definition applies in the context of fraud. In other words, those are not definitions that that arose in in examining the SEC's um, sort of jurisdictional role in policymaking, but rather um, those cases analyze the concept of materiality in determining whether if someone has failed to disclose something or has disclosed something, um, has sort of misstated something, does it rise to the level of fraud? So as an initial matter, you know, in our rules, we tell companies what to disclose or we help, you know, set the standards for what companies disclose um, if it's material. So we do that. We'll say, you know, we'll use materiality as a qualifier and say, you know, if it's material, disclose. And that puts the onus on them to sort of decide what information is, is material. They're doing that within the context of, Will it rise to the level of fraud if I don't do this? And so, um, you know, companies are meant to look at that determination through the lens of investors. As you mentioned, they're the ones that, that, that you know, the Supreme Court says it's their view that, that matters. So, but it's management that has to decide what their view is. Um, and is it possible uh, that they arrive at a different conclusion that investors would? It definitely is. And they frequently do. So that's a, that's a source of of tension. But what I will say is, you know, when it comes to our policymaking and our, and our disclosure rulemaking process, 
um, materiality is is relevant, but not necessarily from the legal standpoint um, that 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 people seem to want to apply. That case law definition deals with anti-fraud. That is not the standard that we employ in rulemaking. It's relevant, um, of course, as we de- decide what investors need and what's in the public interest. Um, in other words, whether a certain kind of topic or area is material or, or decision useful to investors, that's an important driver for, for us to consider. And investors have been very clear, as you mentioned, that, that in fact, this is a topic that's relevant, that's decision useful, that, that we need. So, so once we've made that determination that the topic is material, we may decide to lay out what items a company should disclose. Think, for example, executive comp, and I, I mentioned this earlier. We don't just say, if comp is a material part of your business, disclose it as you see fit. We say, we, 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 say, we hear you, investors. Executive compensation is, is, is extremely important and material. So here we're going to lay out for, for companies what items they need to disclose. They have to tell us the top five um, you know, earners in their, in their business, and here are the specific things we need to know about their comp. So our, our rulemaking is, is full of examples of that. And, and any time that we make a specific line item or tabular disclosure, that is us saying disclose. We're not, we're not asking you to make a materiality analysis here. We've already decided this topic's material. We're saying here's what we need to know about that topic. And, um, you know, so again, sometimes it makes sense for us to qualify our disclosures requirements by saying disclose only that which is material. But um, but here in this context, I think it's quite clear that we need to move beyond that. That is what has been out there since 2010. It's just simply saying, if it's material, disclose it. And investors have been very clear. They're not getting the information they need. Can you talk about this notion of double materiality? It's, I find it interesting that it's finding wider adoption among new reporting frameworks like the EU's Corporate Social Reporting Directive and even the new Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, which diverges even from the TCFD's focus only on financial materiality of climate impacts on the company itself. So, I mean, how do you think about, you know, the, the arc from materiality to an outside in, inside out perspective, or, or is it simply a temporal issue, kind of a, some would even say a false dichotomy? That is actually exactly the term that I've used to, to describe that debate at some level, um, a false dichotomy. I think there is something of a false dichotomy when you try to think about traditional financial materiality as though it's something completely different from what has been referred to as double materiality, meaning sort of the impacts that the company has uh, on on the outside as opposed to the uh, the outside impacts that, and, and how they manifest inside. You know, we we traditionally think about financial materiality as being those issues that bear on the current financial risks and opportunities. And so the so-called kind of double materiality that takes into account the external effects of a company's actions, rather than just how, you know, for instance, climate risk bears on the company's financial in, in, financial at present. Um, but those external effects are, are only external for so long. So you mentioned, you know, is it, is it just a matter of time? Yes, I, I believe it is. Um, you know, it's just a matter of time before those externalities are internalized. That can happen in a number of ways, including through regulation. So I do think in that sense, the risks exist on a spectrum. And the question is not, 
um, you know, do we do we have double materiality? The question is, what time horizon are we looking at? What is the appropriate time horizon for the particular types of disclosures that we may issue? And that may be different depending on whether we're talking about targets or metrics or scenario analyses or the like. Um, so I don't get too bound up in the questions of doubled materiality. And instead, I like to look at and think about what are the time horizons for the risks and the opportunities that, that companies need to disclose. And, and that is a, just a, that's a way of harmonizing the two, I think, without, without making that kind of false distinction. I want to move it a little bit to the investor product disclosure space. And obviously the SEC launched in March, the climate and ESG enforcement task force, uh, which soon followed uh, chairman Gensler's efforts uh, to tamp down on greenwashing, which you've mentioned, I think, you know, with the recent DWS Deutsche probe now in the news, how does the task force go about investigating greenwashing activity when clear ESG definitions, much less climate change risk disclosure requirements, don't yet formally exist? You know, what, what should sustainable fund managers be aware of as these efforts evolve? Sure. I, I want to start there by saying, of course, I can't comment on any specific investigation, um, but I will instead speak just broadly about climate and ESG enforcement um, and what I had in mind when I set up that, that task force. And, you know, also uh, just a quick note, it's not just fund greenwashing that we need to focus on, the task force is meant to cover. Um, it's also corporate issuer greenwashing or sort of failures to disclose material information by corporate issuers. So we have work to do in our disclosure rulemaking <clears throat> in terms of providing or improving the quality of disclosure and achieving consistent, comparable, and reliable climate-related disclosures. But that doesn't mean we don't have rules on the books. Um, it, you know, when you say the ESG definitions aren't clear or don't yet formally exist, there's a lot um, already in our rulemaking framework, some in that 2010 guidance that stated quite clearly that there are existing requirements in place that may require issuers to, to disclose certain climate-related both risks and opportunities. Um, and, you know, for funds and advisors, there's nothing new about the, the fact that disclosures need to match their actual business practices. So, of course, it's true that we can't enforce standards that we haven't promulgated yet, but it's not the case that we don't have existing standards to enforce. And so enforcement staff doing what it what it always does here it's just enforcing the rules that are already on the books and you know that doesn't suggest that we don't need to go further in our rulemaking and create more specific standards that'll provide more certainty for issuers and simplify enforcement and elicit better disclosures but there are rules on the books we've had the 2010 guidance out there we've had plenty of people say it's sufficient it's too you know it, it's it's there, and so you, it can't be both. It can't be both there and sufficient, um, but also unenforceable. It is enforceable. And so what I would say, what, when, you know, what, what fund managers need to be aware of, of course, is, is the, same, the same principles that have applied since the 1940 Act, which is, you know, make sure that you do what you're saying, disclose clearly what you're required to disclose, and then make sure that you act consistent with those disclosures. And then what companies need to do is take a look at um, and think about that 2010 guidance and ask themselves whether, in fact, um, they're they're meeting the standards, of, you know, that that arise by virtue of that guidance. And they can also 
um, get some some clues about that from looking at what it is that investors are demanding. The places where they say it's lacking. Um, but this, but that, you know, the, the task force is, is only going to, and it only can enforce the existing rules on the books. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have high hopes for that, but I also have high hopes for us getting some, some better, more thorough disclosure rules out there for the task force to focus on. I wanted to ask another question just around international disclosure regimes. The EU Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, it explicitly aims to offer protections against greenwashing, as well as steer capital towards sustainable investments and away from unsustainable investments through product level disclosures. U.S. regulators, at least in my experience, you know, sort of avoid this top-down approach because it often results in picking winners instead of those in the process of transitioning. How do you think about the virtues of disclosure while avoiding the potential unintended consequences? I guess what I'm saying is, you know, information is neutral, but there's already, I think, some degree of evidence uh, that sustainability disclosure regimes are driving capital flows for better, or for worse. What, what are the lessons you've learned in thinking about how to architect a U.S. disclosure regime? Sure. Um, it has been interesting to see the evidence that you, that you mentioned, and I follow it pretty closely. Um, as you know, the SEC, we don't generally um, involve ourselves or seek to steer capital either toward or away from any particular type of investment. For the most part, I'll note, you know, we do indeed focus, for example, on trying to get capital to small businesses. So that's not without its exceptions. But for the most part, we're not looking to steer capital one way or the other. What we do is perform, you know, the very important function of of helping to facilitate disclosures that allows investors to do that. It allows them to make the decisions in an informed fashion. And we know that investors are interested in having adequate information because they want to steer capital towards sustainable solutions. So we also know that disclosure requirements may influence corporate behavior as issuers, you know, they adjust to what they think investors want. So take, for example, in the diversity context, um, and I've mentioned this before, we know that requiring enhanced diversity disclosure may influence the attention that companies give to managing their diversity practices. And with respect to climate, you know, it's going to be a huge step forward just to enhance the data that's available so that investors can make the choices that they clearly wish to make when it comes to steering their capital. So that's something that we can and should do at the SEC is get the data out there. But but whether, you know, U.S. policymaking either, either will or should go further than that, potentially mandating greenhouse gas reducing behaviors or any number of other substantive policy approaches, that remains to be seen. But my own view is that markets alone will not solve the issue. And I think there's plenty of evidence to, to suggest that, that that's the case. Um, what, we, what we have to do is enable markets to function optimally in this effort. That's our job at the SEC, and, and it's an important one. But I, you know, I think we can benefit greatly from uh, the, sort of the, an all-of-government approach um, to, to this, so that so that you know the legislatures, the policymakers, all of us are looking, working together, and thinking about how to get there. Got it. I've got one last question, which is the the SEC is constrained by the fact that it 
currently does not have a legislative mandate to make rules for the U.S. financial industry to advance ESG and climate outcomes. We, we know that. In that context, how do you think about the legacy of the SEC and its tactical abilities to regulate through ESG and climate issues absent legislation, as opposed, for instance, to the EU, which is taking a much longer term legislative kind of effort to reinforce and progressively tighten their ESG standards over time? Yeah, that kind of dovetails with with what we were just what mm. I was just talking about. Um, it, it's an all hands on deck effort here, in my view. Every legislative and policy making arm of government needs to be looking at this and working, you know, toward a solution. Um, we're not constrained at the SEC by the the lack of a specific legislative mandate on climate or ESG. We have the rulemaking authority to get the information out into the markets. And we have a tremendous opportunity and, and responsibility as a commission, I think, to do something here of great potential significance in terms of the of the global effort. And our, you know, our mission, particularly as it relates to protecting investors, amply supports us engaging in, in climate and ESG disclosure rulemaking. But I my myself, as I mentioned before, you know, I, I welcome the um, the attention of Congress and, and other policymakers um, that you know, their their work in this space is, is critical as well. We need to harmonize with them. We need to coordinate with them. Their work will inform our efforts and vice versa. So I, I welcome, you know, input from the rest of the, the kind of policymaking universe here in the U.S. And then we need to harmonize carefully and mindfully with global regulators, including the EU on these issues as well. Great. That's, that's a, a great way to sum up. So it's been fascinating to discuss the SEC's evolving views around disclosure and materiality. It's increasing disclosure-related enforcement efforts and the need to work towards greater harmonization given the multitude of global disclosure frameworks out there. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Mad Group, here today with Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Commissioner Lee. My pleasure. Thank you, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.